Hello everybody, we are here on this bright and crisp morning on the rooftop of 180 Soho House in the heart of central London. This is our incredible venue today for the live recording of the podcast. That's right, the room is buzzing with Stackworld members who have come to see Executive Realness live. The girlies are ready, they got their juices and their coffee and they're all ears because my esteemed guest today is none other than Karen Blackett, OBE. Karen is a proven business leader, she's got a track record in creating incredible company culture she loves energizing teams but most importantly she's consistently delivering business growth she's currently the uk president for wpp wpp is the world's largest marketing services group she's responsible for driving this growth in the second largest market looking after 13,000 people In June 2014, Karen received her OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours and she topped the power list being the first businesswoman to come in at number one. In November 2022, she received the Powerless Outstanding Contribution Award in recognition of her continued exceptional achievements. In June 2023, she was appointed NED for Diageo and was a former NED of the Cabinet Office. We are so inspired by Karen. She's been so incredible for the community and if you are a young woman in the creative industries this one is for you because in this conversation we're going to find out her early beginnings what she thinks makes someone feel really welcome in their role and how working with your team to roadmap their careers is one of the best leadership moves you can make don't forget if you want to be in the room for our next live event just join the executive realness community on Statworld today the link is in the show notes Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you for having me. Welcome. So we always start off at the beginning, which I'm particularly selfishly going to dive into because your West Indian upbringing really, really reminds me of my own. You grew up in Reading. Your parents emigrated from Barbados at the tender age of 19, but you had a particularly feminist father you described. Tell us about what that was like when you were growing up. So apologies, first of all, if I'm sounding a bit like Barry White, I am literally just recovering from a cold. So my voice is normally deep, but I think it's gone about 10 octaves deeper since I've had this Well, it'll balance out my squeaky voice, (laughs) so I think we're fine. So so look... um, It's really interesting because there is a stereotype, as we were talking about, with regards to West Indian men. And it's just not what I experienced growing up at all. So my dad, when he came over, he worked as a bus conductor on the buses for a year. And then he got an apprenticeship um, with what is now BT as an electrical engineer. And my mum was a nurse. And because it was two of them in a world which they didn't know yet. Uh, Both of them worked, and there was a real equitable relationship when it came to work, whether that was outside of the house or in the house. So my mum used to work nights at the weekends, and my dad would take all the responsibility for looking after myself and my older sister, Uh, He sort of came from a family of bakers. So my dad was the one that cooked and baked the coconut bread. He made the rice and peas. He did the chicken. Literally the same as my grandfather too. Literally, that's what I knew. I grew up with a male role model that could do all of the work, which traditionally would have been seen as a woman's role. 
So when I got to university and I met men that could not make toast, <laughs> it was an absolute shock for me because <laughs> I'd grown up with a man that was, you know, cooking, cleaning and looking after us as well as going out to work. So that had a big impact in me in how I viewed what roles should be and really about it being equitable. I've always believed in that equality for men and women. I completely relate. We almost have this parallel lives where my grandfather was a bus driver. He then also worked at British Gas, so not British Telecom, so Jamaican in Wolverhampton as opposed to Bayesian in Reading. And it's really funny because a lot of people do ask, like, where do you get your confidence from or how is it that you think you can do it? And my grandfather was such a massive champion and supporter. He had eight daughters. I know there's you and your sister. Uh, Massive champion and supporter of women and kind of told me I could do anything I wanted to do and be whoever I wanted to be. How did your father support you in your dreams and ambitions when you were growing up? So look, he was strict. So my my mum and dad were strict and my dad was probably the brightest man I've met. He really was, but he did not have that educational opportunity in Barbados so he was always studying he was always studying when he came here and of course that uh, was something that he sort of taught myself and my sister I was sort of saying earlier that I'm of the generation where we did O-levels not GCSEs and I remember I had a mock O-level a mock not the real one a mock O-level for chemistry and I came home with a C. I did not hear the last of it. So my dad was really about, you've got to, education was the foundation for everything for him. So he really encouraged myself and my sister to really study hard. Um, and he also, he was very aware of the world that we were growing up in and very aware that he had two daughters and two black daughters. So he would say things like, and I'm sure so many people have heard this, you've got to try twice as hard to get half as much but you've got to really try and he would say but celebrate your differences he really would because he was you're not going to blend you're just not going to blend in you're going to stand out celebrate it so I had that foundation of confidence from my dad and he pushed he absolutely did push and he absolutely celebrated at the same time so I had both that grounding in terms of confidence at an early age to not feel as though I should shy away and try and blend in, but at the same time, always trying to do more and do better. Growing up as a first generation, is it first generation? I'm second. Second generation immigrant. There weren't, in the 1970s Britain, there weren't that many places where you could see yourself necessarily, but sport was definitely one of those areas that for me as a young black girl as well, even in in my world, um, I was heavily pushed into sport as a young girl and I absolutely loved it. I feel like it gave me such an incredible grounding. But when I look back at my school reports, I could clearly see that my mother was saying, you know, can we help her with her science and her maths, not just push her into a sport. You had an incredible career in sport when you were growing up. Talk to us about that and what that was like as an opportunity for you and and the and the skills it gave you for life. So look, my mum was a really good athlete. And so I think it, it sort of came from her. And um, 
we loved athletics. So myself and my sister loved athletics. My sister was a hurdler. I was a sprinter and a long jumper. And my dad was passionate about it as well. So very early on, we joined Reading Athletics Club and we used to go off and do fixtures. I did it at school, just where our school boundaries worked, uh, where we grew up. I sort of fell into Oxfordshire rather than Berkshire. So I ended up going to a tiny little village in Oxfordshire was my sort of secondary school. It was so school. exciting to do athletics fixtures, wasn't it? It, it really, really got was. you out of it your really little was. bubble. And got you to actually see the UK as well. It really did. And so this tiny little village in Oxfordshire, myself and my sister, there was four black kids in the whole school, in the whole secondary school, which was very different to Reading, where we grew up. So we were pushed forward for all of the sport, whether that was netball, hockey, athletics, because we were good at it. But I have to say the grounding of athletics, it does teach you so much, which I use in my corporate world, in my working world. So it taught me about success and failure. It taught me, and I I talked to my son about it because he's really good. He's fast as well. So he's really good at athletics and rugby. It teaches you how to bounce back. So um, I'm a single mum and my son, I've always had male nannies for my son. And one of his um, uh, mannies talked about minor setback major comeback which I totally recognize which is when you when you have something where you've not done as well as you should do learn from it and you'll come back even stronger and I think sport does teach you it teaches you that where you know I was always getting injuries on my legs so I was always pulling my hamstrings I had really tight hamstrings so it meant that I wasn't achieving my pbs or wasn't making the team I'd have recovery time but you'd use that time to think about how you could improve your technique whether that was a long jump whether it was the start in your 100 meters so that you came back even stronger and I think that's something that I use as well in work nothing is plain sailing there's things that go wrong it's how you learn from it so you come back even stronger what I love about that as well when I think about sport is you spend a lot of time in your head running through scenarios, which I think is really useful in the corporate environment. So nothing that, you know, one of the things I say to my team is if I say something, it's almost never the first time I've thought about it. I've turned it over in my head because if you are a sports person, you do a lot of visualization and you do a lot of thinking about what's going to come next well it's a lot of competitive analysis as well in terms of who you're up against especially Mm. if it's a team sport Mm. but even on an individual sport learning about the strengths of the other people you're competing against to see how you can win so again there's a lot of competitive analysis I do in terms of the people I'm competing for to win clients the other agencies which are launching new products or services how can I do it better? How can I do it faster? Or how can I do something totally different? Mm-hmm. So understanding how you position yourself. A lot of that's about that competitive environment and that analysis. But also, it's about practice mm-hmm. as well. So with sport, especially athletics, I'd practice and practice and practice my start. I'd practice it. I do the same at work. I won't go into something where, to your point, I've not thought about it, rehearsed it, thought about different questions that can come up, have an answer for it. It's not just about a presentation and what you say. 
it's thinking about what's going to come next in terms of the questions that could be asked. Mm. And I see so many people in a work environment focus on the one presentation or the one pitch, but don't spend enough time thinking about, well, what questions could be asked and trying to put yourself in the shoes of whoever it is you're presenting to. And I think, again, that comes from that training of being a sports person, practice and rehearsing. So you thought you were going to have a career in sport. Yeah. What happened? I peaked at the 100 and 200. Um, they tried to move me up to the 400. My God, that's hard work. Um, and there were people that were better than me. Um, so you have to realise when you're not going to get any better, when you're not going to improve. And that's difficult as well. When you've had your heart set on something and you realise that you're not going to be able to do it, again, that's learning about not necessarily failure, but that your path's going to take a different journey. So, um, yeah, the 400 metres was not for me. I had friends that went on and competed for GB uh, the 400 metres and were brilliant, but that was not me. So, growing up as this child in the 70s, 80s Britain, there were very, very few role models in the media or where you could see yourself in the media. You definitely had people like Trevor McDonald and Moira Stewart. And I remember you saying that Diane Abbott's nomination and win was a big moment for you. But how did you then look at this world and think, I need to get into media and these are the steps that I need to take? Talk me through that process. So look, again, if I think about my parents, um, I'm very fortunate that I was the younger of two sisters. And so the hopes and dreams went with my sister. And we always talk about this eldest brown daughter syndrome. If you're the (laughs) eldest brown daughter, the pressure is real. And, you know, they wanted both of us to be a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer. And she went first and she became an accountant. She hated it. She then switched and she's a lecturer at Reading University. But it just meant there was less pressure for me. And I always was fascinated by uh, the box in the corner of the room and TV advertising and radio advertising because I was quite creative as a kid and it was trying to come up with what I thought were better ideas but I didn't even know what that industry was I had no idea my family had no idea we knew nobody and the careers advice team never know no the careers advice team said nurse or teacher both of which were very worthy professions and I suppose I do a bit of that actually in the real world now in terms of nursing a P&L and teaching in terms of marketing and communications. But I had no idea that that was an industry sector or how to get into it. And again, my older sister had a friend from university that had gone into Unilever, actually, as a junior brand manager when she graduated. And that's when I started to find out, and she was a good friend of my sister's, and that's when I started to find out about what marketing really was how that industry worked in terms of ad agencies and media. I didn't even know anything about that. So I then started subscribing to the industry magazine. So I'd go to WH Smith and Reading and I'd have my subscription to Media Week and to Campaign. And that's where I started to learn more about the industry. And look, I didn't know that there was vocational studies that was related to that industry. I didn't know about art colleges that you were meant to go to if you wanted to be a creative. 
So I studied what I loved. So I did geography. I did a geography degree. And interesting, there's so many people in advertising that have got geography and psychology degrees. It's bizarre. I think it was full of people that didn't really know how to get in, but had were fascinated by people. Um, so I studied what I loved. And when I graduated, I then started the mission of trying to get into the industry. And that was from the client side in terms of becoming a brand manager um, or a junior brand manager on the graduate schemes. And it was on the ad agency side. And I applied and got rejection after rejection after rejection. And I kept changing my covering letters. I kept adding in information that I knew about the organizations. And I was not getting anywhere. And I was on the verge of giving up. I really was on the verge of giving up, thinking, right, what else can I do? And I saw an ad uh, in the independent newspaper. And I pivoted, because it was about a different part of the industry, which was more stats-based. It was about being a, an, an auditor. So the person that once a campaign's happened, you'd go in and talk to the client about whether or not the agency had bought the right frequency, they'd targeted the right people, how many people they'd reached, and you'd go in and almost audit the campaign. And, I, and that meant you had to be good at stats and math, so I went in on that angle. And at the time, and the industry's changed now, at the time, that auditor was part of a media agency. And it was in the second interview when I was asked to go back and present about the pros and cons of advertising on Sky TV, which had only launched a few years before. Um, and ironically, they're one of my biggest clients now. Um, it's not ironic. You uh, manifested it. I think I was standing there presenting. And again, I'd use my sister's friend to fight because I didn't flip in though. I had no idea. So I'd use my sister's friend to help to help me come up with the ideas, to help me write the presentation. And it was, I had somebody that was, I was able to go to one person. And it was in that presentation that they saw something and thought, actually, she might be better at the planning side and the buying side rather than the auditing. And they sent me to a different part of the agency. And I had two interviews there and that's how I got in. And it was literally having to pivot to use a different part of my degree for a different part of the industry to try and get in. I love this story because the facing of rejection can somehow make you think a sweeping generalization, yeah. this industry is not for me, you know? And just changing your tack ever so slightly meant that eventually you got to where you wanted to in the first place. Yeah, look, it was the less glamorous side of the industry because everybody was applying for the creative agency mm -hmm. roles. Everybody was applying for the marketing roles. This was the less glamorous side where there was less competition, where they were more open to people's backgrounds and where they came from in terms of what they studied and actually who they were. Mm. Because when I think about you know the marketing side on the client side and the ad agency side, it was very single-minded and very closed as to the people that they took into the industry. You had to go to a certain art college we had to go to a certain university and you had to be networked with people already in the industry. And I was none of those things. And today we still hear that this is how people are locked out of the industry as well. It's a lot better than it was. It really is because the industry realizes if it needs to survive, 
it has to communicate with the whole of the UK and beyond mm. and they have to understand the global majority mm. and have to have empathy with the global majority so it's a lot better so you're seeing more people coming through at grassroots level from different backgrounds to really make sure that we're getting diversity of thought at the senior level because you know 20 30 years ago there still wasn't enough people being hired it's still you know I'm a unicorn yeah. And we're still not doing enough to bring people in from other industry sectors mm. at senior levels. We'll talk about that later at what you do at WPP, because I know you've got some incredible programs there. Going back to this first role, and excuse my naivety, but can you please explain exactly what media planning and buying is? So um, one in three of the ads that you'll see on TV will be one of the ads which one of my agencies has bought. So it's not necessarily the people that have made the ad, but it's securing it in the right place. So whether that's TV, whether that's an out-of-home campaign, whether that's something you see on TikTok or Snap, or whether that's something you hear on the radio, one in three of those ads would have been bought by one of the agencies and the campaign to plan it. So a client will come to us and say, I've got £5 million and I need these, this number of sales, or I need to reach this number of people, or I need to change consideration by X, what should I do? And that's where you plan what the best route is. So you'd never done any of this before? Never. You didn't know anything about this industry? Nope. Your first job, tell us how you survived that first year. Do you know what? I'm, I'm curious, and I'm, I'm a good student. So I am a really good student. So... I remember going in, um, I was sort of given a phone and told to get on with it. I, I had no idea about, and it was predominantly at that time, it was predominantly press buying that I was doing. And uh, I had, my boss uh, was a black man, mm. Colin Gillespie. So it was Colin, me and Michelle and reception were the only black people in the whole agency. In how many people? Probably about 350. 350, 350 people, people and just three, three black people. Yeah. Yeah. And I was blessed that Colin was my manager because he spent the time to teach because he wanted to see me succeed. Um, and, you know, he'd go through and I'd listen and I'd learn. So I'd listen to him. I'd learn from him. There was others in the agency who, again, would give you time to sort of explain things. There wasn't a structured training program at all it was on the job get on with it how do you how do you ask your managers and leaders if you don't really know what you're doing for support without making it look like you don't know what you're doing therefore why should you have this job because I feel like that's a really tough balance to to find so look it was they knew I was entry level they knew I had no grounding in it at all and I didn't study anything that was even vaguely related but they knew through the interviews that actually she's got a, a viewpoint or an approach. So it was really about, right, you need to buy this press campaign. This is what a 25 by 4 ad looks like. This is what a 38, because I had no idea what any of that was. So it was literally take me through the building blocks. So they'd give you small projects for you to do on your own. And then eventually those small projects would get bigger. So... I mean, some of it, they really did shut me in, was picking up the phone and start negotiating 
with the Daily Express newspaper to buy an ad. And again, the other people on the other side of the phone knew that you were new. <laughs> Some people would take the piss and try and take advantage, but others, I genuinely believe, I, and I have to believe this, that most people are kind and most people are gracious. I have to believe that. And I saw that. I genuinely did with other people on the other end of the phone who could have said, right, let's take the piss, let's get the best rate possible. They would say, well, have, have you checked what has been bought before, what rate has been bought before? So they'd help as well. And look, I made mistakes. Of course I made mistakes. I, you know, forgot to tell people that I'd booked a campaign in terms of the creative agencies that they could send copy. I'd made loads of mistakes but it was always something that could be rectified and you never do that mistake again. I'd never booked a campaign and forgot to tell the people to send the copy. So you make mistakes and you learn from it. So even though you were creative, you were negotiating and deal-making from a very, very young age, yeah. from the very inception of your career, which I think is such an incredible skill and we talk a lot at the stack about the skill of negotiating. What are some of the tactics that you would use with clients and buyers and the, the industry writ large that meant that you got the deal that you wanted? So look, I think that commercial grounding has been incredibly important to my career especially in a creative industries, to understand the value of creativity. I think it's been really important. And in terms of negotiating, I think it's always about understanding what the other person wants to get out of it, uh, understanding where you need to go, and two ears and one mouth. It's always in that proportion. Let them talk, you listen, and then use it to try and make sure that nobody feels disadvantaged by where you get to. Everybody has to feel happy to some degree with where you come out. You never want to leave negotiation with the other side feeling as though they've been fleeced yeah. because that's not good and it's not good for business. And it's not good for long-term relationships It's not good well. at all. It really isn't. So... And you, there is always some degree of compromise. So even if it's not the exact rate that you want, there's something else that you can get into a negotiation. So it's that it's always letting the other person talk first. If you, if you know any people that are in procurement who have gone on procurement training, they always have that tactic of letting, they tell you, let the other person talk first and let them keep talking and keep talking. <laughs> and you have to use that tactic. Because that's when everything comes out and you hear where people are going and what they really want. And that's part of procurement training. So that's part of the commercial negotiation. It's incredible what people say when they feel they need to fill the silence and Absolutely. keep talking. Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. So you had an incredible career there for three years. You loved the job. Everything was amazing for you. But you still decided to move because you thought that in order to increase your salary and your seniority you had to leave and go to another company and this is something I'm really interested in because everyone talks about how millennial and gen z do no longer have a job for life how they're always moving around every two three years because that's the only way that you can get this salary increase how tell me about that move from job number one to job number two I think it was Zenith wasn't it um and did you feel that you got all the things that you desired from that second role 
So that was the thing that you had to do in the industry at the time. You had to move around to get that next level of experience, to try different cultures, to get that next level of responsibility. And I was really happy in my first job. I'd made some great friends. I'd got great responsibility. But as what can happen in a number of roles, people then undervalue you and complacency sets in. And it's only when somebody else wants you that the agency that you're at or the organisation that you're at suddenly realise your Very value. Very classic relationship thing, isn't it's, it? It's true. only when someone else wants it's you. It's only when someone else wants you. But that was what you had to do when you were a first, uh, you know, first time into an industry. You moved around every two or three years in order to get the experience and get the promotions. And I moved to an agent. So I started in a top three agency. I moved to another top three agency. So I went in at the big agencies. And the agency that I went into at that time, Zenith, it was predominantly a buying agency. It just did media buying. But it had one account, BT, where it was all of the planning and all of the buying and all of the strategy. So I went in in a strategy role and it was a, it was seen as the prestige account in the agency. And I'm very inspired by people. So a lot of what I do in my working career is about what can I learn from different people. And the head of strategy at the time at the agency was well known in the industry. He was sort of one of the people that's always talked about in the industry was always in our industry magazines talking about his viewpoint on something. So you were excited about the potential of being there? I was incredibly excited because I'd be working with him. He wasn't my direct line manager, but because this was the account where you did strategy, he was fully involved in it. And in my interviews that I had, we got on like a house on fire, just talking about different views talking about the industry, what could be changed, what could be better. So I was really excited. And then I got into the industry and literally in the first, and you always get that new person syndrome. Oh my God, I don't know where anything is. And you don't have friends there. And so you always have that. But it was in my first week, I knew I'd made a massive mistake. Red flag straight away. Literally, (laughs) just in terms of, there was an approach or the way that you were meant to write documents, write presentations, write... Stru- there were, it was literally a cookie-cutter approach to anyone working on this account. This was the way that you did a report. This was the way you did a presentation. There was no room for self-expression. There was no room to bring your own creativity to enhance... So you had to, and I, I talk about this a lot because it's guided me in terms of how I think about creating teams. I want cultural ad, not cultural fit. And this particular agency wanted you to fit in, to become a clone. So I felt smaller. Even though it was a more senior role, it was more money, I felt smaller. And I felt like my wings had been clipped and that was in the first week I sort of picked it up thinking, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it will get better. And it literally, I was like, this isn't getting any better. 
And the guy that I sort of was inspired by, I realised that the rest of the agency was nothing like him. Nothing at all like him. And he left the agency, I think, in four months of me starting, because he couldn't bear it. <laughs> so he'd been there a while. It's like, I can't do this. And he left. And uh, I remember talking to a friend, and she was going, how's it going? And I'm like, it's, it's, it's not for me, but I've got to stick it out. I've got to at least get a year, maybe two years on my CV before I... Because that's what I thought you had to do. Before we go on to this next role, I'd love to go back in time and how would you redo that differently in terms of helping your first company understand your worth? Because I think sometimes employees don't realise that they also have the power to help the managers or senior leaders understand, I want to stay here, but I can't see any opportunities for me here. What can we do to ensure that I stay? Because engagement and retention is a huge part of the industry. It costs you in time, in cultural fit, in training, every time someone leaves. If you were to take yourself back there now, how would you orchestrate it so that you could stay while also being satisfied? It's really interesting because Colin was telling me to stay. He was absolutely telling me to stay. But I genuinely thought this is what you do in the industry in order to get, you know, your advancement in the industry. And actually, what Colin did do, and he did do this, so I don't think there's much I would change because he knew my value, um, but I was, it was me. I wasn't listening. So he did think about, and he did talk about, well, maybe you can roll, move to a different part of the agency, um, because it was a big agency and the team that I was in was big, but it wasn't the biggest. So was there a strategy role within the agency that I could have moved to actually helping me plot a career path? Because we didn't, they didn't do that at the yeah, time. Yeah, like road mapping your Absolutely. career. Absolutely. They didn't do that at the time. So I think visualising that and actually plotting it would have been key. Because Colin did talk about, well, you could move to a different part of the agency, but I didn't know what part. I didn't know for how long, I didn't know. And I think making that real um, and understanding where I could get to would have been really, really important. So he did do that to a certain extent and talked about, you know, there's, you know, you could, you could be a strategist here, but then there was no substance behind yeah. it. So I think making that real and visualising it and having conversations internally would have been the better way, rather than saying you could be a strategist here, Go you could pay a out. bit more money, but, you know, just have those conversations. Mm. And that's why career planning is so important in that retention journey. I feel like that there's often in, um, as I've hired over the last 15 years, there becomes a window for whatever reason in someone's personal life where they're thinking about making a move. And you have an opportunity as a manager and a leader within that window to support them in that journey in terms of staying or helping them on that next career. But you, it takes a lot of time, planning, effort and investment into someone in that part of their career. So yeah, that career road mapping and planning, I think is something that all managers and leaders should be doing with their team. And look, when somebody comes in and resigns to you, it's too late. Mm. So part of 
what I always talk about is really understanding your people mm. personally and professionally to like understand ongoing, just knowing absolutely them. Yeah. about what's going on. And look, I've had it really recently where somebody's made a decision to leave because it's connected to something personal, mm. which I didn't know about. And that's my failure because I should understand what's happening personally and professionally to make sure that I can really help people in their journey. And sometimes you have to let people go. Sometimes it is what they need to do. But always make sure they leave well and always make sure they can come home. Because I always tell people that you can come home when you're ready. Because I think that's really important. Tell me about the start of your WPP journey. So I've worked at different agencies within WPP for a a long time and different roles within um, WPP, but moving into HQ, so WPP's holding company, that was in 2018 that I moved into WPP and the person that hired me was Martin Sorrell, so the founder of WPP. Doesn't it feel weird that someone in one of your agencies could be president one day, but you don't know who they are? Just like you were in one of the agencies, and I bet Martin Sorrell did not know it might have been you. Look, Martin knew who I was. (laughs) (laughs) You have to make sure that, and that's the thing, having brilliant sponsors that means that the big boss it's actually little but the big boss knows who you are how do you do that how do you at one of a number of agencies within a group make your personal brand known in front of the bosses look that's part about partly about what you do within your organization it's partly about what you do outside of your organization and that's about your values and what you stand for so you'll know I'm passionate about talent and talent from all backgrounds being given an opportunity because the opportunity is not always there. Mm. I'm passionate about creativity is about diversity of thought. That's how we get brilliant, brilliant creative ideas. So I've tried to do that within organizations that I'm in and try and make sure that outside of organizations, I'm doing things to bring people in or doing things to make sure that economic empowerment happens. In a practical sense, what does that look like? So if I'm a 28, 30, 32-year-old within an agency, what are some of the activities I could be doing today to make sure that the leaders see who I am? Look, within an agency, part of the the, the lifeblood of any agency is new business. Mm. So I cut my teeth doing new business roles for a while and winning business. You made money. Yeah. If you're bringing in revenue, (laughs) people know that you're associated with revenue coming in. If clients are saying, we liked Karen, that is something that the people who are running the agency know about because clients are asking for you to be on their business or asking for meetings with you. Mm. So... You know, new business was something I cut my teeth on and winning revenue, clients knowing who I was, and then speaking about the industry. You have to have a platform to give your ideas. So whether that's, you know, industry magazines, whether that's events, whether that's conferences, and then doing roles outside. My dad always said to me, learn and serve. So learn your craft, earn your money, 
serve, which is about giving back. So I have done that, which meant that you have a platform where you may be speaking on TV, you may be in the national press, and Martin reads some of those articles. Martin sees you on TVs. Um, you know, whoever that big boss is means that you you're you're known about and I had the support of the agency that I was in the boss of that agency talking to Martin about me and talking about and incredibly generous in terms of sharing the spotlight making sure that he was known for spotting talent and nurturing talent and keeping talent because that makes him look good completely I love this idea of like what are the qualities you want people to say about you when you're not in the room or when they're discussing you at a party? So the fact that he was able to talk to Martin and attribute these traits to you, I think is really key. And like you said, anything that makes them look good is, is a winner. What was your first interaction with Martin Sorrell like? And how did you end up, like I said, in HQ? It's really interesting because I always had a good relationship with Martin. And I think Partly that was because Martin never thought I could take his job. So he, <laughs> so he never felt he threatened. He wasn't me. afraid. <laughs> he was, he was, and I literally wasn't afraid of him because I'm like, I know what I'm capable of. Yeah. I know what I'm good at. It's very different to Martin. I mean, Martin does a ma- masterclass in macroeconomics. But in terms of the creative, you know, the creativity that I have, Martin doesn't have that. So really understanding your USP, your worth, totally. your value, what makes you special. Totally. And fo- and a real understanding on people and how to connect with people. So my first meeting with Martin, I was actually called into his office, which at the time was a tiny little office in Mayfair. Uh, and I was called in because I was chairwoman of um, the agency that I was at at the time. And I was looking at leaving to go somewhere else. And my boss uh, was like, okay, we recognize that you're going to leave our agency. So it's the conversation that we just had. I recognize that it's time for you to move on from our agency because where do you go after chairwoman of an agency? Actually, we shouldn't lose her from the group. So recognizing rather than her going to a different media group, there's a bigger role within the holding company and the holding group and setting up a meeting for me to meet Martin. And the first meeting was a really interesting one. I saw, I won't go too much into it, but I saw... Oh, but we love the details, but go (laughs) on. I saw a really different side to Martin, to what his reputation was. Martin rewarded loyalty and I'd been loyal at the agency that I'd been at because I'd been there some time and worked my way up uh he genuinely did recognize a skill set that was different to his um and I uh, you know and he would hate me saying this actually but I saw somebody that was kind which um isn't the reputation that he has but I genuinely saw somebody that was kind So we had a good conversation and uh, negotiating with Martin is interesting. (laughs) Um, That is, that is, I mean, literally, that is really difficult. Um, So we then had a period of talking about what the role would be because it's the first time that the the role was correct. We didn't have 
a country lead for WPP for the UK before. So it was created for you. So it was for created you. for me. Um, there were some country leads in other markets, um, but you never really knew what they were doing. And so Martin, we talked about creating this role and Martin talked about what he thought were the key KPIs to the role and I helped craft them and I helped change some of them. You know, he was sort of saying, you know, we want to make sure we've got the best talent at WPP and I'd go, and by that you mean diverse talent from all backgrounds, from all walks of life. So you really, you really shaped... Before you even moved into this role, you really shaped and designed what it was. Because I wanted to set myself up for success. Mm. And I also knew what was missing um, from our agencies. So really having that time to think about what do we want to stand for and being able to help co-create the role. And of course, there's a revenue target. Of course, there's a winning business. But beyond that, how do we attract the best people to win business? How do we create the best partnerships to help us win business? It's always about revenue, but there's other things that we should be using our power to help fuel. And that goes beyond our industry and goes wider in terms of society. And that purpose side, that wasn't Martin's area of focus but he was really receptive when it was put in front of him in terms of we could do X. He was totally receptive. Us opening a campus in Manchester was one of the first conversations I had with him because I said, London is not the only creative city in the UK. We've got amazing talent, especially digital talent from all of the universities around Manchester. We've got some of our businesses there. Let's create a Manchester. And he was all for it. We're running out of time, so I'm going to whiz through my final questions and then we're going to have some questions from the audience as well. But what does the president of WPP UK actually do? Because I think also this role between president and CEO or GM or managing director, you know, these are interchangeable seemingly titles that people can make their own. What does a president do? What do you do? So I have a UK... Exco. Um, so my executive committee consists of 14 UK CEOs that make up 65% of the revenue for WPP in the UK. And with that executive board, my role is not about how to run their businesses because they are amazing, talented CEOs, but how I can get that team to work together to win business. So we talk a lot about um, Opco Plus or Agency Plus, which is about creating integrated teams. So how do I partner Ogilvy with Wavemaker or how do I partner Ogilvy with Essence Mediacom to deliver a service for a client? So part of my role is creating integrated teams from the agencies to win revenue. Part of my role is to go out and talk to clients about their journey through WPP. So they may be working with one of the agencies, but actually really understanding what their obstacle or barrier to growth is to say, well, actually, have you thought about this agency as well? So helping a client's journey through WPP. And then it is to be that ambassadorial role, creating the programs that run across all of the agencies. So you sort of mentioned some of the programs that we have for for different talents. So 
one of the programs which I'm really proud of is Visible Start, which is about um, midlife career women who have had a career break for whatever reason, teaching them about digital and data in a six-week program and then trying to find them roles within one of the agencies, the WPP. Our other program is about understanding the apprenticeship levy, making sure that all of our agencies are working on the apprenticeship levy. Elevate, which is our program for black women uh, at mid-level, making sure that they stay within WPP. So they may need to leave their agency, but they move to another agency within WPP. And they have a 13-month program of sponsorship from somebody on the Exco to make sure that somebody understands their talent. So creating those WPP-wide programs for talent at WPP is something that we do, and then bringing in partners as well. So the stream event that you went to, understanding who the partners are that should be on that, that we should be creating relationships with. How often do you meet with those 14 heads of group? Uh, as a collective, yeah. monthly, and then outside of that, individually, monthly. So you've referred so many times throughout this conversation about talent and how important talent is, but we all know that AI is upon us and the future of creativity and talent is going to be ever-changing <coughs> over the next few years, decade, etc. What is your point of view on how we integrate or use or be terrified of AI in the creative industries? It is a tool in a toolbox. It is not the end thing. So it should help us do things faster. It should help us do things at scale. But you still need talented individuals to use it and harness it. So there's so much conversation which is just about AI, where it's not either or. You still need amazing talent to be able to use it. We were doing, um, so one of my roles is to create um, creative councils where I get a, you know, small group of clients together to talk about big topics which are happening in the industry and how it can affect their business. And we did one on AI and we talked about generative AI and actually uh, our chief AI officer at WPP came in and presented and we talked about how with generative AI, actually looking at how you can use AI to create ads and, you know, what you could write in the box in terms of what you want the AI to come up with. And anyone can do that, and so, you know, and we've all had training in it. But the bit about having somebody really creative in that box is talking about a specific camera lens, a specific camera angle, a specific way of shooting, which unless you're a talented creative individual... You, it wouldn't go in that box. So you will always, you know, I've been in conversations where some clients have said, well, we don't need agencies anymore. <laughs> and it's, well, that was an example of why you do, because you use the tool, but it has to be somebody talented harnessing it to be able to get the best out of it. So that additional type of camera, camera lens, camera angle, which unless you're a trained creative, you wouldn't know, is how you get the best out of AI. But also as well, when I think about creativity and advertising, so much of it is cultural and like, let's be real, it's bants, isn't it? It's like, do you know about this exact weirdo thing that only this small group of people know, but somehow has this cultural resonance? Like 
memes, for example, are something that are really hard to like laugh out unless you know. So I think that that is also going to be an important part in who is inputting this, these things into AI, which is, do you understand the cultural relevance of the creative tasks that you're handling? Well, look, AI is about learning. Mm. So we use our different AI models to make sure that they're continuously learning. And to your point, what are they learning from um, is really important. And again, in terms of scraping where the AI gets its data from, I never think it's about mining data it's about the insights that you get from the data which is what's crucial for sure so this conversation is about scaling yourself up and we've heard your entire journey of how you've taken yourself from reading all the way to the very very top in mayfair um you have a life coach adrian green which i've also had for a period of my time he's incredible but you've had him for 25 years tell me about your coaching journey and why you think it's important to have a coach to scale yourself look that goes back to my athletics days i believe in coaching so you know in athletics you had a coach to try and help enhance your performance And I believe in your career, you need a coach to enhance your performance. And it's personal as well as professional, because we all have things that happen in our personal life that can affect our professional and vice versa. And I tend to have a coaching mindset. I really believe in terms of my leadership style, it's from the front, the middle and behind. So sometimes I'm out front going, we're going over here. Sometimes I'm in the middle as part of the team. And sometimes I'm at the back pushing them all forward and coaching them what we need to do so for me coaching is about how you get performance and the best performance from an individual and with Adrian um, he's not the type of coach that sits back and lets you talk it through it's not therapy (laughs) he literally will work through different scenarios with you Um, and just having somebody that's not in your industry but understands it and is totally objective, helps me because he helps me talk through the thoughts in my head and what's going on in my head, uh, either in terms of helping them get some order to them, some sense from them, or dispelling some of the things, which is the devil on my shoulder that's stopping me. Amazing. Okay, we're going to take some questions from the audience. Yes, go ahead, hand straight up. This is a really great question, so I'll just repeat it. In short, congratulations, by the way, on your new role. How do you balance your work life with your personal life? And the reason why I think this is a brilliant question for you is you are one of the most networked, invited, like constantly in demand people that I know. We're so grateful to have her here today. But how do you not burn out when there are so much demands and your industry in particular is a 24-7 industry? How have you done it? Look, it's hard. I'm not going to lie, especially as I'm a single mum as well. So I've been raising my son since he was five months old, just me and him. And so first of all, I hate the term balance. I think it's blend. It really is about blend because work is life and life is work. And sometimes you're going to be doing more of one than the other. So I am rigorous with my diary. 
so that I will set my own parameters in terms of how many times I'm out and networking or doing something which is associated with work because I need to make sure that I'm home for my son, especially as he now thinks he's a big man at the age of 14. <laughs> um, Mine is 12, it's coming. It's all coming, honestly. The hormones are real. Um, so I, I will be rigorous in terms of what I say yes to. That does mean that my diary is booked a long time in advance, but I stick to it. And I always make sure that in my diary, I actually place time in my diary where there could be space in it and it says keep free. And that's my reflection time, my reading time. I literally treat that time like a meeting. So it is, and I go through and I do that. So Wednesdays is the day that I work from home and Wednesdays is the day that I will do creating presentations or reading information that comes through but then I will do some self-love as well something for me so whether that is the gym whether that's reflexology whether that's acupuncture that is in my diary because that's important for me to keep going so you have to do that you have to be militant with your diary and block that time in don't just think oh, I'll try and find block it in like a meeting which is the reflection time for you and just decide whatever your parameters are in terms of how often you want to be out in the evenings because you could be out seven days a week. You could be. You've got to decide what works for you. And remember, it's a blend. There may be a week where you're doing more work and there may be a week where you're doing more personal things. And that's okay because you blend it. Thank you so much. Back here. Rosie said, how would you build a strong brand community within your team and with your client base? So I talk a lot about having a personal brand and knowing how to get to your own personal brand, first of all. There's a brilliant um, book that talks about personal brand and four questions that you need to ask yourself uh, about how to create a personal brand. But in terms of a team brand, you have to co-create it. So the best way of doing that is to co-create it. It can't come from you as the founder. You've got to co-create it, and then it has to live somewhere within your organization. So where I've done this going into, you know, exec teams, so my executive committee or my managing partners teams, where we've co-created what our values are and what how we're going to turn up and behave and how we're going to hold each other to account We've done things like put it on the back of our iPhones as an iPhone cover, like a mantra. We've shoved it on the wall. We've got it wrapped in the cover of our notebooks. So that there is a, and it's also how you run meetings as well. So your agenda that you create for meetings need to reflect the values and the brand that you want to create. And you do that with clients. You've got to literally set your stall out. So you talk to your clients the way that you present, every, every single external factor is a way of how your brand shows up. So whether that's about um, the way you create a presentation, the way that you write a contact report, the way that you do an agenda, the way that you sign off an email with your email signatures, all of that is how your brand shows up and you've got to be consistent 
and use it as an opportunity to showcase your brand. But the first thing I would say is you'll have a strong idea, but help make sure that your team co-creates it and can input because they'll live it as well. Hey, Praline. I love that. So really if you one. were to look at your career in chapters or seasons, what chapter are you in right now? I am in the high performing chapter. Um, and my chapter, the next chapter might be what's next beyond the creative industry. And there are conversations that I'm having, which is, uh, which are about that. So uh, beyond the creative industries, what's next. And that goes back to the learn and serve. So, uh, What's my next way of serving? I feel like Mayor of London <laughs> would be great. No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, any other question? One more? Just here. Um, so, my name is Natalie. I'm a client side procrastinating. Why did you stay in the industry instead of going to client side? Part of that's about my own way of working, and part of that's about what stimulates me. So on the agency side, I have, and look, and it can lead to burnout, you're absolutely right, but on the agency side, I can be one minute looking at a consumer packaged goods brand, I could be looking at a record company, I could be looking at a supermarket, I can be looking at a finance brand. It is that diversity of different industry sectors, which I love, because that suits me in terms of how I learn and then being able to take uh, something that I've learned in one industry sector and try and apply it to another. So I love the diversity of different industry sectors that I get to, I think it's a privilege and I think it helps me with my own knowledge and my own learning to be able to work across literally every industry sector in the UK and it gives me a good currency. Um, for me, if I went into a client side, it would have to be a client which has an equal opportunity to, for me to have that diversity of thought, but also that opportunity to learn. And as of yet, I am still waiting for that to happen because I really need to make sure that I've got that real different perspective on everything rather than being going deep in one particular area sorry I'm just we've got to wrap up now um we've had your attention for an amazing amount of time thank you so much my last question is for anyone in this room or or anybody who's listening who wanted to come and work on your team what are the type of qualities that you're looking for when you work with people directly for me, it's you have got to be interesting and interested. I really want people that have got something about them because that it's it's literally the opposite to what I was going through when I was trying to join the industry. I need people that have got other things going outside of their day job. I want people that have got side hustles because those side hustles really help with creativity and I want them to be able to bring it in or just to weird, the workplace. weird hobbies weird, weird passions literally that's really it makes you interesting and I want that coming into a team that's trying to problem solve 
so interesting and interested and look I because I am somebody that's quite passionate about what I do there's got to be a passion for people you've got to have a passion for you've got to be curious about why somebody chooses one brand or one product over another which is I suppose where psychology comes into it you have to have that passion for people and you've got to be somebody that likes to win if you're going to work for me oh yeah we love that thank you so much Karen give her a round of applause pleasure thank you Executive Realness is brought to you by The Stack World, a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women. Join The Stack World today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally. Download The Stack World app now on iOS or Android. You'll find the links in the show notes.